Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. We have just begun a series in the book of Romans, and uh, we are kind of covering some of the same material a little bit as we did last week to get through the introductory material in this book before we launch into 16 chapters of gospel depths. Uh, And as we turn to his word this morning, would you just pray with me briefly as we begin? Uh, Father, no matter what we bring into the room, uh, every single person can pray that um, we need help in our unbelief. Maybe we can pray that we believe, but we also have to pray if we're thinking clearly, help us in our unbelief. And we know that you can meet us in that place and that your word can address us. And so we pray in confidence, Lord, help us in our unbelief this morning. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What gives you the right? One of my favorite lines from an office scene, if you're an office fan, where uh, Michael is interviewing Toby. He says, what gives you the right? It's a great question for important conversations that are loaded with uh, important information and details that if someone's going to bring to you and maybe even confront you with something or, or deliver over to you something of great substance and weight, it's a good question to say, like, what gives this person the right to say things these things to me, or if you're going to do this with another, you might think, like, what gives me the right to enter into someone's life in this way? If someone's going to bring challenging words to you, that's an okay question to ask. If you're going to bring challenging words to another, it's an okay question to think through, what gives me the right? What gives you the right? And, and that's a great question as we think through the, the book of Romans as Paul begins to write. Paul doesn't just barge in, as it were, and say, listen to me. He details out to them what gives him the right to speak into their lives of importance uh, the gospel of God that he laid out in the first four verses. And here's what gives Paul the right. Paul is going to describe just briefly that he had received grace and apostleship from Jesus and that he received this gracious, gracious apostleship that gives him the right to speak in order to pass it on. So grace is received by Paul, he receives a gracious gracious apostleship, and then he passes on that grace to those who are in Rome. Out of all the things that he could have pointed to that give him the right to speak, it's interesting that he chooses and draws out and points to grace. Grace that he'd received from Christ. Grace that had made him an apostle. 
Now, recognition and knowledge of this book's author and his task are important details for moving forward in the book of Romans to understand it rightly, to understand how we are to receive it rightly. And he tells us in verse 1 who he is and why he's writing. He says, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I love that Paul, the way he talks about himself, is always in his, in his light of his role and in relation to Jesus Christ. It's as if he talks about himself in order to get to that, so that he can show his devotion to Christ. He, he sees his life and his purpose through the lens of Jesus Christ and the grace he'd received from them. His total devotion to Christ and to the gospel of God is explicit. And so devoted is Paul to Christ that he calls him in verse 4. He says, this is Lord over my life, which in the New Testament is a massive title. In a way, you could sum up the entire New Testament with that, those words, Jesus is Lord. Because those, that word Lord is referring all the way back to the Old Testament where we see the, the divine name of God, Yahweh, and, and that is translated in the New Testament or with the Greek is translated that with kurios, which is Lord, which is the same word he uses here. So he's saying all that God is, Jesus is that. He is Lord. It's a massive title. But here's what we need to recognize as well is that Paul didn't always recognize Jesus as Lord. Jesus was descended in the line of David he lived, he died, and was raised. God's gospel exploded in the book of Acts, it exploded on the earth. It sent ripples out that shook many places and many people and angered many people, especially the Jewish elite in Jerusalem, including a rising star in their midst named Saul. In Acts chapter 22, this Saul says that he was educated by Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. In Galatians chapter 1, he says of himself, Paul, Saul, I was advancing Judaism beyond many my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. This man is elite. He's a part of the social Jewish elite, a rising star. But in all those texts, you know what he also mentions right alongside that? He mentions his zeal for the law of Judaism. And in all his zeal, in all those places, his zeal leads him to persecution of the church of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. Galatians chapter 1. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted those who follow the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison. Not just men, men and women didn't care. I'm trying to destroy the church. Would have been his mindset. That's what he says in Galatians. This is not a man who thinks Jesus is Lord. This is a man who thinks to call Jesus Lord is blasphemous. And that anybody who calls Jesus Lord needs to be bound and put in prison and destroyed so that their movement, whatever it is, if it's the way or whatever, like we want to take it out. That's his mindset. And so he persecutes the church. He persecutes those who follow the way. He persecutes those who call themselves Christians. And that's where we first encounter this Paul in the scripture as, as a persecutor. In Acts chapter 7, if you turn over there, we find him in the death of Stephen. 
Can you imagine the scene as Stephen, follower of Christ, gifted to speak, is, is boldly proclaiming the gospel of God, promised beforehand in the Old Testament. He's laying it out before people, and the, the Jewish lead are angered. And they're so angry that they pick up rocks to crush his head. And in verse 58, they take him out of the city, and they throw those rocks right at him to kill him. And as they do, it says that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's there and approving of the scene. Stephen is going to cry out, verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's going to fall down and cry out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And those words fell on hard ears. Can you imagine a man being stoned, crying out, shrieking out in pain as he's getting his last breaths, and a man holding garments, unmoved? Because in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that Paul approved of his execution and was part of the momentum that arose on that day to persecute the church in Jerusalem so that they were scattered. And in verse 3, it says of Saul that he was ravaging the church and entering house after house. My, he is targeting, right? It's not like, oh, we're going to get this area. We're going to go house to house if we have to. We're going to ravage the church of God. And he drags off men and women and committed them to prison. And in his plans to destroy the church, Paul wants to make sure that he can expand operations. Jerusalem's good, and we'll go house to house in Jerusalem, but we need to expand operations because the way seems to be moving outward. They're being scattered, so we need to make sure that we take care of that problem too. And so he gets permission in Acts chapter 22 from the Jewish elite to move toward Damascus. And that's where he starts going. And we hear of Paul's words of this encounter on his road to Damascus in chapter 22 of Acts. It says in verse 5, the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness because from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And without warning, Paul sees a light. As I was on my way, verse 6, and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And this is no normal light, this is a very abnormal light, because what this light does is it knocks Saul to the ground. He sees something, and it knocks him to the ground, and then he hears something. Verse 7, I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Love this, that Jesus arrives in the scene through this light, and that he takes personally the persecution of those who are following him, the persecution of the church. Like, he just interjects here, and he takes personally, who are you persecuting? He says, why are you persecuting me? I love that, because those, they'll fall away. Those who are the church of God that Paul's, Saul's trying to destroy are his. They, they belong to him. So that just... Maybe just put a little caution if we're going to say harsh things about the church of God, if we're going to persecute or, or be mean to the church, like be a little cautious about that because this is Jesus' church and, and he takes those things very personally, so much so that he could show up to a guy like Saul and say, why are you persecuting, not them, me? 
But Saul recognizes something before he even knows who he's speaking to, because he asks this question, who are you, Lord? He recognizes him as Lord before he even kind of knows the identity of who he's speaking to. Well, we know who this is. This is, this is the resurrected Christ. This is the one who came out from the other side of the grave, who appears right in front of Saul's eyes, knocks him to the ground just with light. And in verse 4 of Romans chapter 1, Paul calls him Lord and says, I'm a servant of that one. I'm an apostle of that one. How do you go from being a persecutor of the church, wanting to destroy it, taking men and women to be imprisoned, to saying, I'm an apostle of Christ. I serve him. I want to build up the church of God. How do you do that? Now, just quickly, I mean, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. God didn't change Saul to Paul. It's probably the same name all along. So we're not moving from Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. We're just dealing with a man who's been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And here's how he would describe what happened to him. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the, great, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Oh, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I'm the foremost. And I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's what happened to Saul the persecutor and what transformed him. He met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and grace overflowed from that Christ into his life and transformed him. And here's what we need to know about Paul is as he says here, he wasn't a seeker. He wasn't trying to find something out. He had a very clear defined purpose for this trip and that was to destroy the the church of God. I love what one commentator says when he says, Paul's not a spiritual seeker who happened upon Jesus. He was a zealous Pharisee convinced that by crushing this pernicious sect, he was doing his countrymen and God a favor. In fact, he was probably the last person anyone would have expected to become a follower of Jesus. And he meets on that road grace. Oftentimes, we can define grace, rightly so, as, as unmerited favor, but that doesn't seem to kind of quite, the way, even the way we talk about it, it doesn't seem to capture what happened to, to a man like Saul in Damascus Road. Like, what happened? He met unmerited favor. Like, yeah, but that's a little bit toned down, right? Like, he met power that transformed him. Like, Saul was no seeker, but God's grace found him. He wasn't moving to Jesus, but Jesus was moving to him. God's grace sought him out and found him and transformed him, uprooted his life and turned it around in a different direction. And that's the nature of grace. Call grace unmerited favor all you want, but make sure you animate it rightly with what it really is and its power. That's the nature of grace. It's not waiting around for anybody to make the first move as if that was going to happen. Saul wasn't going to make the first move. His move was, I'm already serving God. I'm going to kill all those who call the name of Christ. That was his move. God's grace isn't waiting around for those who can finally help themselves, right? That's who God helps, right? No. 
God's grace helps those who can't help themselves, like Saul, don't want to help themselves. Like Saul, feel like they don't need any help. That's where God's grace meets people. No one works into this grace. No one proves himself fit to receive it all of a sudden. It only meets undeserving people. It only meets the powerless and transforms them. That's what grace is. And in Paul's story, what God is doing is he is showing his grace off, saying, look at this. Can you believe this guy persecuting the church of God? And now all of a sudden, he is completely different. Now he says he's a servant of Christ, apostle of Christ, serving the gospel of God, pouring out his life as a drink offering for the sake of Christ's name. Can you believe that? How far-reaching, how patient is God? How amazing is that grace that it could transform a person like that? Now, we have to admit this morning that that maybe our story isn't a lot like Saul's. I kind of hope not, right? That's not the ideal story that we'd have for anybody. But still, we can see the nature of God's grace. And God's grace can meet people like Saul and us at our worst. And it meets us at our worst, and it turns us Godward. It's his power at work in our powerless lives. That's grace. And it can meet each of us. This grace can meet anyone at any time, anywhere. But notice how it comes. It only comes through Jesus. It's only ever received, and it's only ever received through Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 5 in Romans. He says it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have received grace. There is no other way to get it. You, You don't go claim it. You don't go grab hold of it. You don't work your way into it. You don't do anything to have achieved it. You just receive it. That's the only way it happens. And it also only happens through Jesus. Through him, he said, I've received grace and apostleship. On that road to Damascus, Jesus knocked him down, questions him, but Jesus also doesn't leave him there, does he? He converts him, transforms him heart, and then commissions him, sends him on his way. And those two go together in Paul's life. You you can't separate out neatly when he received the grace of salvation and the grace of apostleship. He received a gracious, gracious apostleship. He is a recipient of those things. The risen Lord on that road to Damascus, when he knocks Saul down, could have done whatever he wanted to. He could have knocked him down and then ignored him. He could have knocked him down and killed him. He could have knocked him down and even saved him by his grace and said, but I'm putting you on the shelf. That's not the nature of grace. He he knocks him down, saves him, and then transforms him. He's a gracious Lord, and the grace that meets Saul converts him and commissions him. And that's what grace always does. A real meeting of grace, a real reception of grace, never leaves any unchanged. It produces repentance for salvation and reformation in one's life. It saves and transforms. It pardons and it empowers a life lived for Christ. It always does both. And so if God's grace knocks you on the ground, you can be assured that it's not going to leave you there. It's going to pick you up and send you forward for the sake of Christ's name. That means that, that we move forward by grace. Paul says, I've received grace and apostleship. So it's only by grace that I'm continuing on in this thing that started on that Damascus road. And the same is true of us. We only move forward by grace. We don't move forward by, we've been knocked down by grace. And now we're going to prove ourselves worthy of this grace that we had received way back here. That's not how it works. We move forward by reliance upon the grace that we had first received. I love 
uh, Ephesians chapter 2 gives us this stunning picture of salvation and grace. But maybe that the most powerful words come in chapter 2, verse 10. Where you see, like, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And that's amazing. We were dead. We deserved to be, uh, God's wrath to be poured upon us. We're children of that wrath. And somehow, God's grace saves us. And yet, notice what he does with us. He, he has prepared works. Because we're his workmanship, he's prepared stuff for us to walk in. So it's not just we're saved by grace. Yeah, like he wants us to move forward by grace. That's just stunning. You're saved by grace. And then do you just stop? No, you have God-prepared works to walk in by that same grace which saved you in the beginning. Like, what that grace is, is that's grace that can keep you moving on Monday morning. When you feel completely purposeless, like it felt great on Sunday to hear about this grace, but then I wake up and I have a dead-end job and I feel completely purposeless, what do I need now? You need grace. And you need to know that if you're God's workmanship, that he's prepared works for you to walk in even that very moment, which is unbelievable, and you move forward by that grace. It's grace that can keep you moving when you have nights of loneliness, like I'm not sure if this is all worth it. You can know God has prepared whatever for me to walk in, and I just need to walk in it. That's what Paul tells him to do in Ephesians 2.10. Walk in it. And it's all grace. All grace. Saul is converted by that grace. He's commissioned by that grace. And it's this grace that he writes of when he writes to the Romans. Paul says that he received a gracious apostleship. And the nature of this apostleship, he describes for us in verse 5. And he does it with three prepositional phrases, which I think are helpful for us to break this down. So we have Paul, who's received grace, and he's received this gracious apostleship. And here's kind of the aspects of it. Here's how he would describe it in three prepositional phrases. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There's one. For the sake of his name, that's two. And among all the nations, there's three. So he sees his apostleship as aimed at certain things. It's aimed at the obedience of faith. It's aimed for the sake of Jesus' name, and it's aimed among all nations. So obedience of faith, that's the first one he mentions. God's gospel concerning his son, who was descended in the line of David, and who died and was raised, and now is declared son of God in power, calls people to respond to the gospel— and the right response to that gospel is faith. And so when he says that, that he is trying to bring about, trying to produce, aiming at the, the obedience of faith, that is saying that there is obedience that consists in faith. It's the right response to the gospel. You hear the gospel, the right response is faith. Right? We, we know that the, the Paul doesn't want hearers of the gospel only. He wants those who will hear it and respond to it. He wants doers of that word. And how do you do the, the gospel? How do you respond to the gospel? You believe it. Faith. You have faith. But the obedience of faith is certainly obedience that consists in faith is kind of this initial response. But it's also this response, the obedience of faith also includes obedience that then flows from faith, that comes from faith. It's both of those things, I think. It's obedience that consists in faith and obedience that flows from faith. So true and living faith always, hear that word always, always includes obedience. Always. Abraham believes God and what does he do? He, he obeys. He obeys God. The Great Commission. Jesus says, go and, and make disciples of all the nations. That's a proclamation of the gospel so that you could, so they could hear and believe and you could baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit and do what? Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Right, that, that's part of it. Part of the response to the gospel is to respond with faith 
and then to live that faith out in obedience to Christ. And, and so our response, obedience of faith, consistent faith, and then response flows from that. Obedience flows from that same faith. Obedience to the commands, to the word of God, is what faith looks like on the ground. What, what does faith look like on Monday morning? It looks like taking these words and living them out, obeying these words. After all, we would say, as Paul says in verse 4, Jesus is Lord. The, and if he's Lord, that means he is in charge, that I don't get to say back to him what I would rather do. I listen to him and respond to him and submit to him. He is Lord, I am not. And so if you're in right relationship with Jesus, the one who is Lord by faith, then you know that I have to obey him by faith. Perhaps you've heard that it's possible to receive Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And maybe you could ask that question, right? Like, hey, and I, well... Can you? Or, or maybe you've even said it that way. I've received Jesus as Savior, but I didn't receive him as Lord. And, and likely, you know, if you encounter this, you need to ask lots of questions to find out what actually people are talking about. But often, it seems that pe when people say, I received Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, what is likely going on is like they love the idea that Jesus would come and save them, but are not real interested in the idea that they'd have to then obey him. And so likely there's an area where they're just saying, yeah, I don't really want to obey so I like Jesus as Savior. I'm not so sure about him as Lord. Which means the response to the gospel that demands, right, faith is lacking. Because it's obedience of faith that both consistent faith and it's the obedience of faith that the, the obedience flows from faith. And so the, the, the response to the gospel demands faith is lacking if you say I've received Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And, and is that possible? Well, one commentator said it so well. He said this, it is not. <laughs> I love that. This, this is John Stott. It was so, it's like he writes this great commentary. He's got all these long sentences. There's probably a million prepositional phrases. And right in the middle of it, there's this really conspicuous, it is not. Love it. It is not. So please don't be fooled into thinking that in your own life thinking I can receive Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, like Jesus is who he is, right? He's all of those things all at once. But do notice that one who would have you call him Lord and respond to him by faith as Lord calls you to obedience, but the one who calls you to obedience is a really good Lord. Right? Don't miss that God would have each of us respond to the gospel by faith, Trust him, but also obey him. O obedience to Jesus, one who is willing to die for you, to give his life for you, that's one worth following. That's one worth giving over and saying, you're my Lord. That's one worth saying, I, I can obey you. We know that the, the scripture bears witness. John, his beloved disciple says, yeah, his commands, they're not even burdensome. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, if you are burdened, why don't you take my yoke upon you? It's way better. It's easy and light. It's like a non-burden. That's the yoke I give, a non-yoke. That's the one you want to call Lord. The gospel, since it is God's and since it's concerning his son who descended in the line of David and rose in power, he demands of us this response of obedience, the obedience of faith. And because the gospel, which Paul has set apart for, demands it, Paul's apostleship includes it. I'm trying to aim, I'm aiming at trying to produce the obedience of faith. It's part of his purpose. And that gets us to the second one. I'm going to do these in order, not that they appear in your text, but as the order that they are in kind of the original, which I think leaves 
leads to kind of a, a climax. So the second one is then among all nations. The, the vast majority of Paul's usage of nations is when he's speaking of non-Jews. So Gentiles and just all peoples that are non-Jewish peoples. And it fits the context here in Romans that his apostleship is aimed, not aimed strictly at some sort of geographical area. It, it is aimed primarily at Gentiles. And, and he wants to hold out the gospel for them. That is his primary role as an apostle. In verse 14 and 15, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He, he is aiming at nations, and by nations, primarily, he means non-Jews. Gentiles, then, he is including as those who can respond to the gospel of God with the obedience of faith that he calls for in these verses. And this is this promised gospel that he had given beforehand that they can respond to by faith. The, the gospel that was handed down in so many different ways, promised to Abraham that you're going to have many offspring, and it, one from your offspring is going to bless all the nations of the earth, is coming down and flowing all the way to these Gentiles that Paul writes to. Like he's fulfilling promises by handing these things out and then believing it by faith. Or, or we see in Isaiah chapter 49 that this is promised beforehand. 49 verse 6, he says, It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And the idea, again, is not strictly geographical, although it will include that. It's that it's Jews and non-Jews. I want it to go all over to all of those nations. So the gospel then that Paul writes of that he's going to describe to us in Romans is for all nations without distinction. In other words, they can receive it as not a message that's primarily for others, but this is a message for us. And indeed, Paul's a, an apostle that aimed at us. And we can say the same today, that the gospel is still aimed at us. It's not a message for another. The gospel of God is still aimed at us, that we too might respond to it with faith and receive from him the gospel and then carry out the obedience of faith. It fits us in that word, all nations. And that third reason, third aspect, third purpose of his apostleship is that it's for Jesus' name. And I think that this is listed third in the original because it is, in a sense, a climactic purpose for Paul. The, the, the purpose of Paul's apostleship could be summed up here. The, the purpose of Paul's writing, Romans, could be summed up here. The purpose of his life, he could probably say it's summed up here. It's all for the sake of Christ's glory, of his honor and his renown. He works for the obedience of faith among all the nations, not ultimately for his own name, for himself, or for the name of, of certain Gentiles or different nations. He works ultimately for the name of Christ Jesus. It's for Jesus' name. So John Stott comments, he says that the highest of all missionary motives, which is the motive that Paul is explicitly saying is his motive, is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God in verse 18. But rather, zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul writes. He gives them the gospel of God because he wants the name of Christ to be honored. He wants renown for Christ. That the gospel message that Jesus descended in the line of, of David and, and ascended again, overcoming death, and is now the Son of God at the right hand of the Father. He 
gives that gospel message for the sake of Christ's name. It's very Philippians 2-ish, isn't it? Where, where Jesus descended, taking the form of a servant, and then ascends, and, and at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Like God the Father had, had put on him at that time, like, I, I'm going to exalt you and give you the name that's above every single name. That descent and ascent happens for the sake of Christ's name in Philippians chapter 2. So in a, in a sense, we could say God's response to the, the work, the finished work of Jesus is to say, his name is above every name. And, and every knee should bow and every tongue can, should confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that should be, it's God's response, it should be everybody's response, and he promises it will be everyone's response one day. That's the destination. That's where this world is going. That's where all of humanity, all this thing is, it's ebbing and flowing, but it's all going right there. Every knee's going to bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord, the only Lord. And that means that every single knee, every single tongue has a stake in what they say about Jesus. Because that's where we're going. And so that means for us, then we shouldn't seek to hijack that destination or move away from it by bowing our knee to another, confessing lordship of another, or by encouraging the bowing to another or the confession of another. That would be to hijack the the destination that God has already set and, and ultimately is vain. We shouldn't spend time on vain pursuits of another's glory or even encourage others to live for another glory. Like how, how much vanity is in finding our life, work, and purpose in our own glory? We have breath in our lungs. That, that's going to be taken away one day. Right? How much... Vanity is, is, is found in finding glory in another who hasn't risen from the dead, right? Like, those are going nowhere. If you're going to bow the knee to another but Jesus, if you're going to live for another purpose other than Jesus, if you're going to pursue your own glory or another's glory, like, you need to know right now that's going nowhere. It's going to terminate. And it's going to terminate in a certain place. It's going to terminate in some way, mysteriously and gloriously, in Christ's glory. That's what's going to happen. Paul works for that right here on the earth. He says, that's what I'm all about, my apostleship. That's why I'm giving you the gospel of God. I want Christ's glory. So he says, I'm set apart for that gospel that I might go out, proclaim that gospel so that people might receive it by faith and carry out this obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of Christ's name. His care and concern for the gospel leads him to have this care and concern for obedience of faith among all the nations for Jesus' name. And those two cares and concerns always go together. If you're going to care about the gospel, you're also going to care about the obedience of faith among all the nations, not just a specific nation, although you will probably have some specifics that you want. Among all the nations, for the sake of Jesus' name. That's what we live for. So these are the aspects of Paul's gracious apostleship. He received this radical, scandalous grace, and he wants to pass it on to those that are under his apostleship as non-Jews specifically. So his apostleship then includes, and this audience includes, uh, non-Jews. That's the audience to this book primarily. He says, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's including, like, my apostleship is, is for you, those who belong to Christ in Rome, who are, who are loved by God in Rome, who are called to be saints in Rome. I, what a description of his audience, right? 
stunning description of his audience. All you who belong to Christ Jesus. They belong to him. Yeah, at a time when Rome was the center of everything. And that your Roman identity and being in that city and being part of what they call Roman, being considered that as your identity, was massive. And Paul comes to that and says, I'm writing to you who belong to Christ Jesus, which is even bigger and even better belonging. Because Rome might be Lord of some things, but he just said that Jesus was Lord. In other words, he's saying he's Lord of all things. Jesus is, after all, the one who demonstrated his love for them in dying for them while they were still sinners. That's Paul's audience, right? Those who are loved by Christ and who belong to him because of that love that he displayed for them. That love then brings them to this place of belonging to him. Because belonging to Jesus then is so good, they can know that that's all the belonging they're ever going to need. So the gospel, it offers satisfaction to one of the deepest, most fundamental longings of every single soul, belonging to Christ Jesus, and that belonging is all the belonging anyone will ever need. So you don't have to look elsewhere to belong. And even if your belonging to Christ Jesus makes your belonging to something else diminish or makes your belonging actually disappear, because if you belong to Christ, you can't be this. Paul's saying, yeah, that's still going to be enough. (laughs) That this belonging is one who's loved you. He set you apart and called you a saint. Because he loved by dying sacrificially, none then needs to prove themselves to belong. You, You don't need to work your way into belonging. You just receive it. Receive belonging through Christ Jesus. Now, dominating Rome at this time was, was, was worship of a different god, lowercase g, or gods. So worship of Jupiter and Juno and Minerva were happening in Rome. And on one of the seven hills, there was this big temple where this would happen. They'd go and worship these gods. But God's gospel in that place was carving out a people who belonged not to those things or to Rome primarily, but to Christ. He says, you're you're those who belong to Jesus, loved, set apart, called saints. That the work of the gospel among the nations must be effective because here he is writing to Rome and saying, there's saints there and I'm writing to you. I want to write to you about the gospel of God. Now again, because nations in verse 5 likely means non-Jews, it's clear that Paul's audience will include that. Some non-Jews, and probably the majority, it's likely that they're the majority of the people that he writes to. In chapter 11, verse 13, he says, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. He kind of singles them out a few different ways. Chapter 15, he he speaks to Gentiles, and and he's kind of pulling some authority here in them, and he says, as a minister of the Gentiles. And so it makes us think that his primary audience, at least the majority of his audience, is probably a non-Jewish audience, a Gentile audience. And I think that helps us read it consistently throughout as we go, that you'll see that his primary audience is that. This would have been reflective of Rome. The population of the time would have been about a million with maybe 50,000-ish Jews. That's a small, small percentage of Jews in in the city of Rome. But notice that Paul doesn't exclude Jews. Like, he's going to talk to some Jewish audiences as well in the midst of this. He, He says he's writing to all who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's Jew and non-Jew. Now, it's interesting that this is a church. These are believers that that Paul didn't plant this church. He hasn't visited Rome. What an interesting thing. Like, he's writing to them, and he hasn't even been there, which is probably why he writes this long introduction, one of his longest introductions. And he's he's trying to explain what gives me the right (laughs) to, to write to you. Because he hasn't been there, and he didn't plant this church. 
In chapter 15, verse 22, he describes some of this. His longing to see them. He says, I have often been hindered from coming to you. Hasn't come to them yet, verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, which is one of his purposes for writing. Like, let's partner in the gospel for the sake of those nations that are even further beyond you to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul is riding on his way to Jerusalem, that's what he says in verse 25, and he mentions here Macedonia and Achaia, which can help us kind of pinpoint where he's at in the book of Acts. And, And that pinpoints us, puts us all the way to Acts chapter, end of chapter 19, chapter 20. Likely then, Paul writes from Corinth, or somewhere around there in the area of Greece, during this three-month time that you see described in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, which would put the estimate for when Paul writes this kind of mid to late 50s. But all that information gives zero detail on how in the world the saints got to Rome. And that's a long way from Jerusalem Paul hadn't gone there. He's the most extensive missionary that's on record. Like, he has gone out all over the place. He hasn't gone there. He hasn't visited them. He's longed to, but he's been hindered. He hasn't been able to get there. How does the gospel get there? Well, likely, this happened in Acts chapter 2. You see the day of Pentecost, and people from all nations, it says in Acts chapter 2, were gathered there, and what what happens? Like, the, the spirit descends, and the gospel explodes as they faithfully and boldly declare that the good news of Jesus Christ that you can respond to him and have relationship with him by repentance and faith. And likely from there, all those that were from those nations didn't remain in Jerusalem, but all went back home. Some of them could have been from Rome and take the gospel back to Rome with them. So that's likely kind of the start. But I, I like one, what one commentator says, and this is long, but I think it's helpful for setting the context of, of the book of Romans. They say, never in the course of previous history had there been anything like the freedom of circulation and movement which now existed in the Roman Empire. And this movement, followed by certain definite lines and set in certain definite directions, it was at its greatest all along the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, and its general trend was to and from Rome. All roads lead to Rome, right? The constant coming and going of Roman officials as one provincial governor succeeded another, the moving of troops from place to place with the sending of fresh batches of recruits and the retirement of veterans, the incessant demands of an ever-increasing trade both in necessaries and luxuries, and he continues on, a, a thousand motives of ambition, business, pleasure drew a constant stream from the eastern provinces to Rome. And among the crowds, there would inevitably, inevitably be some Christians. And somewhere in the workings from Pentecost on, Christianity gains a foothold in Rome. Like the the center of the universe, in a sense, at the time. Christianity starts gaining a hold. And we can't really explain that, right? I I think maybe the best way to explain it is to think about the parable that Jesus said. He talks about this seed of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 4 says, The seed of the kingdom of God is planted. You know what the planter does? Goes to sleep wakes up and it's massive and he says he just knows not how he knows not how 
That's what the gospel does. That's what gospel seed does. Like, you get it out there, and it starts taking growth, and you're like, you don't even know how you did it. Like, I didn't even do anything. It just kind of happened. That's what the gospel does. It goes out, and it brings back something that we never could have imagined. It defies explanation. And because it took hold in Rome, Paul could write to them and extend to them the Christian greeting that we see in verse 7. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those who are called saints, he can really extend grace and peace to. He can really say you can have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. He can extend that greeting out to those who were in Rome. It's amazing. They share in the same grace and peace that Paul himself had, that the people of God had. And and he's saying to them, like, that's extended to you. You can receive it through this gospel. I mean, there's no higher honor for them than to receive grace and peace from God. The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds us, like, this is how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would have it. As they promised this gospel beforehand, they would have it be received among all nations. That you, among all nations, would have grace from God and peace with God. God promised it beforehand to get a people. And here they are in Rome. He's got a people among these nations in Rome. So effective is this gospel that, think about this, there are saints that are in Rome, which again, we don't even know how they got there. It just kind of happened. We all went to sleep and then it grew up. That's what Paul did. And they're receiving a letter from Paul. Like these are the last places on earth that these things should be taking place and they'd be converging together, that there'd be a gospel taking hold in Rome and that Paul would be the one who's going to write to them. Those things shouldn't be happening. But the gospel of God does that kind of work. That's what grace does. But grace never hits dead ends. It it doesn't hit the cul-de-sac and have to turn around. It might hit some barriers and it just barges right through them. It's power at work in our powerlessness. It always keeps flowing and moving. And so Paul, he, he has this gracious apostleship. One where he, he passes on the grace that he had received from the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, by grace, by God's grace, it's extended out today. And I want us to hear it afresh and anew. If you're far off, hear the invitation from God. Grace and peace to you. If you're near, in whatever capacity that nearness is, hear the blessing from God. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace doesn't wait for us to meet a certain standard. Lord, we can relate to Paul in that we were all rebels and enemies of your kingdom. We were bent on our own ways and our own wills, and we were running from you, Lord. But I have to assume that the vast majority who are here this morning are here because grace intervened. God, we thank you for that. We pray that you would 
just form us into the image of your son through that grace, that you would give us bigger hearts for the nations, more desire to see the lost saved, to see your grace intervene in the lives of many, many more. Help us, God, to understand that grace is what saves us and grace is what sustains us so that we can walk out a life of obedience and faith that your name might be glorified, that this grace might be passed on to the ends of the earth, God. Help us to be a people on mission, self-sacrificing. Help us, Lord, most of all, just to lift you up in all that we do and say, because you're worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.